0: You might call last week the low point of the book of Numbers, where you see some of the great leaders of Israel passing on. Miriam died, Aaron died, and Moses was forbidden from entering the promised land. Not only that, they try to start the journey to the place where they're going to cross the Jordan, and at their first request for rite of passage, they were denied by their own kinsmen, the Edomites. So that is really the low point of the book, although we're not out of the woods yet. There's still going to be some issues for them to deal with, but structurally. And speaking of the structure, this is now the second travel section of the book. So we've we've been using a geographical structure for the book of Numbers. Um, we started out with, a, with them at Mount Sinai, which is when they counted all the people, hence Numbers, for the first time. Then there was a travel section when they went to Kadesh Barnea, and there was all kinds of... Bad stuff that happened along the way. And then uh, while they're at Kadesh is where they refused to go into the promised land. And God told them they were going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And so we can assume that during that camp section, as we're calling it, uh, they were in fact moving around and living what you might call a Bedouin lifestyle. But as far as the book is concerned, it, it depicts them starting there and ending there for 40 years. Now in chapter 21, this is a short travel section to where they're going to arrive in chapter 22 near the land of Moab, which is where eventually in the book of Joshua, they will cross the Jordan River. So this is really the end of their, of their travels before they actually make the, make the step. And we will actually be at that, uh, in the land of Moab, for the rest of Numbers, all of Deuteronomy, and the first part of Joshua. So just like most of the Pentateuch was at Mount Sinai, uh, we're going to have another long stop here. And this is where, chapter 21, they're departing from Kadesh Barnea, which was a a rough place for them. And things are finally going to start to look up for them. We're finally going to get some positivity in this book, which has been hard to come by ever since they left left Mount Sinai. And I, I enjoyed studying this chapter. There's several stories in it, any one of which could have made a sermon on its own. But while the stories that we've been reading serve, of course, important historical purposes as in recording what the Lord did, and there's theology that we can glean from it. It's also important to remember that the stories of Israel wandering in the wilderness, all of the kings, all of the exile, they're there to provide us an example. And there are some scholars today, in fact, it's a growing trend, who say the all we can know is what happened at that time, and it's not proper to draw principles out for our own application. But Paul has already given us that permission. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. He said, now these things happened to them. He's referring to the wilderness generation. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So, so much for not reading the Old Testament Christologically, not looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. We've been told that that's, in fact, why it was written down. And so with that in mind, this passage serves, as I was studying it, as a kind of, as a template. It's a picture of how you can make the transition from the wilderness to the promised land. And they're not going to get there yet, but they're going to get as far as they can get before crossing that river. So that's how we're going to look at it as we study tonight, that if you feel stuck If you feel like you you just aren't making any progress or maybe you haven't even come to faith in Christ and you're just wondering what this whole life thing is all about, this is going to give us instruction on how to move forward. And it's also got some fun stories in it. So let's begin with verses one through three. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord, And said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. And they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. So last last we saw, Israel was denied passage through the land of Edom. They wanted to take the short route which would have been perfectly fine because it was the the bordering country to the land of Canaan, but the Edomites refused them. And so they are now forced to go around. And we see that the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, now the Negev is the desert region to the south of the promised land. And like we saw in Exodus 17, When the Amalekites did this, this king of Arad will raid the caravan of the Israelites and take captives back into the Negev. He's going to enslave some of the people. And the last time Israel fought a battle, it was out of defiance to the Lord in chapter 14. When they said, we should never have refused to go into the promised land. We're ready to go now. And God says, No, I've already told you, you can't go. You had your chance and you missed it. And they said, well, well, then we'll just go without Moses and without the ark. And that didn't go well. They were defeated at this place. But this time, when they are attacked, they're moving on, they're vulnerable, they're attacked. They decide we're going to do things differently this time. And this is also where you begin to see the transition of the generations because almost all of those of the, of the first generation that had failed to go in would have passed on. So you can already see them doing things differently. And they decide to recognize that they are helpless without the Lord, that they need God's help. They can't just run into battle even in such an obvious situation where God would want them to go fight. David would do this an awful lot. When there's an obvious War that needed to be fought. But he would still pause and ask the Lord. And sometimes God would give him insight into the battle. So that's a lesson of its own. And they make a vow to the Lord. They vowed a vow. You can assume that they would have offered votive offerings to the Lord. And they speak with one voice. Do you see how they, third uh, plural, in verse 2, speak with the first person? If you give them into my hand, I will devote their cities. That's unity, right? And they say that they will devote Their cities. Now, the ESV has devote their cities to destruction, and your translation may just say to destroy their cities, or it might have to destruction in italics. Because those words are not actually in the Hebrew. What they vow to do is they will haram their cities, and that word just means to devote. The Bible will talk about the devoted things that were in the presence of the Lord. So they say, we are going to devote them. But in a military context, this phrase haram always refers to holy war. That we are not going to spare any of them. We are going to wipe them all out. Men, women, children, raise the cities to the ground. Take no plunder and just devote it to the Lord. And this, in fact, this concept of haram, that word was used in other uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures. So this was, this was known. This is a, a technical term here. Very similar. And I want to be careful how I say this because there is a very strong difference. But when you hear the word jihad, you know what that is. So to haram something is, is similar, but there are important differences, which we will get to. And we're going to, when, probably when we get to the book of Joshua, we're going to examine at length the biblical concept of holy war. Suffice it for now, I'll just give you the conclusions ahead of time, the Bible is abundantly clear that there is a time for war. That is abundantly clear in the scriptures. God, as you can see, totally approves this strategy, which on its own would give this moral legitimacy. If you don't like the fact that they destroyed this nation, either God told them to or he didn't. If God didn't tell them to, then you can't put this on God. So, so much for that, Richard Dawkins. But if God did tell them to do this, God has the prerogative to establish judgment against people. And in fact, he will not spare Israel from this. They will have the similar thing happen to them by means of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and so on. Rome at a later time. David said in Psalm 144, verse 1, The Lord is a man of war who trains my hands to make war, trains my fingers for battle. I can draw a bow of bronze. And the difficulty, of course, is in looking at the New Testament commands to love, but to love who? Our enemies. Implication being, you will have enemies. And also, that most of the, I don't want to get too far into this, and I realize I am, but uh, the commands that Jesus gives us to turn the other cheek and so on are are very much in an individual context. And what we have here, this is being, words being given to a nation. So, that'll have to to do you for now. Just simply acknowledge that it's in your Bible, and the Lord is wiser than we are. And a great victory is won here, and they name this location Hormah which is a word that means destruction. It is, in fact, related to the word haram. Can you see that? Haram and then chormah. So the vowels very often will change in Semitic languages, but the consonants will stay the same. So they devoted the people of Arad to destruction, and so that is actually what they named this place. Devotion, which would be destruction. And it's interesting to note, 40 years before, in chapter 14, verse 45, when they tried to go into the promised land and lost, this was the same battlefield where they were defeated, was at Hormah. So there's a complete flip. So now they are winning battles at this place rather than losing them. Now that they've decided to give it all over to the Lord. So for our application here, the desperation that was brought about by the wilderness and the loss of leadership And the captives that had been taken drove the people back to God. We are now actually going to come to God and ask him what he thinks. And they had not done this for the majority of the 40 years. The rest of the Bible tells us that many of the people had given themselves over to idolatry, to sexual immorality. But now, in this case, they come back to the Lord. And if we're going to look at this personally, every man has to recognize his captivity in the wilderness before he can enter the promised land. Until you have come to the end of yourself, until you have realized that you are hopeless without Christ, you're not going to live that abundant life. That is always the first step of conversion, but also of any kind of spiritual growth. That we must come and be crucified with Christ. We've got to recognize that the only good we have is in Jesus. And if you still think that I can figure this out, you're going to have to keep looking. It's unfortunate there are a lot of people that grew up in the church and are now in their 20s or 30s or even later maybe who have not given themselves completely over to a a debauched lifestyle. But it's like they're trying to leave the church, but their conscience just can't quite let them. It's like, well, I don't want to do any of this sinful stuff, but I I think I can find it apart from Christ. And they're caught in their own conscience, and they're getting frustrated with life. And the answer is you want the things that you had in Christ, but you can't find them anywhere else. So if that's any of you, listen, you're not going to find it except in Jesus. People do all kinds of terrible things to think they're going to satisfy that God-shaped hole in their heart. They think if I get a lot of money, if I have a lot of sexual experiences, if I get a lot of children who will love me, if I transition from male to female or vice versa, then, then I'll finally be happy. But those things don't satisfy. Drugs don't satisfy. Any of that. And the Lord will wait until you are desperate enough to turn to him. And you read through the Gospels. It is a long train of Jesus with a single word bringing people to the end of themselves until they are forced to make that life and death decision, because it is exactly that. In fact, the prophet Hosea told the people in Hosea 5.15, this is the Lord speaking through him, he says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. God says, I will hide myself from you until you are so desperate, so distressed, then you will be ready to seek after God. And what that, what that costs is devoting some things in our lives. Stop trying to think, well, I can win the battle and take plunder. I can live the Christian life and enjoy all the benefits of being a sinner too. But when you do that, you're going to lose the battle at Horma. But when you finally say, all right, you know what? I don't want anything else. I don't need anything else. My soul is the only thing that matters. Where is God? That's when you'll find him. And that's the point where the journey begins. So I'll ask those of you that maybe feel you're on the outside. Maybe you're not even saved. Maybe you haven't put your faith in Christ. Or maybe you're dealing with a struggle or a sin or God's trying to take you to the next level and you know it, but you just can't do it. You might be unhappy with your life. Have you become desperate yet? Are you desperate for life? Because when you are, that's when God will find you. Looking at verse four through nine, this may be a familiar story for you. From Mount Hor which is where they had buried Aaron. Do you remember? They set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. You know, the miracle heaven bread that snowed every morning. Worthless, they called it. So then... So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So this is the, the departure here. They leave Mount Hor where Aaron was buried, and they've got to go south to get around the land of Edom, which is going to take them almost all the way back to Azion Gaber, which is at the north tip of the Red Sea. And they're going to begin another long desert journey. They've been in Kadesh, which is it's not the promised land, but it's, it's, you know, it's got oasis. It's, it's a nice place to be compared to the open desert. And for the last time, and we'll just say finally, <laughs> they're going to grumble about food. There will be other things, but they're no longer going to be questioning Moses' authority. And from now on, they're no longer going to grumble about food. We can see they're growing. But they call the a worthless. And this time, God sends them a plague. And the Bible tells us God sent plagues among them several times, but it doesn't tell us what they were. This time we do. A plague of fiery serpents. Of all the plagues that you could, you could endure, I don't know if a fiery serpent plague is, is one I'd care to enjoy. That's probably second only to the plague of lions that God is going to send upon the northern kingdom later. But can you imagine, I mean, you know how, I mean, COVID, right? It was everywhere. And he's kind of like, if I go out and I'm, you know, I'm not wearing the mask or if I'm around somebody, you're going to get it. It's kind of like, after a while, what do we all say? Well, everybody's going to get it. So might as well just get it. Imagine if it was that, but it was venomous snakes. Yeah. <laughs> now, I think there's a really great picture here. And the Bible draws this out in multiple places. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Now, this is history, it's not in scripture, but the Bible will often compare uh, Pharaoh to a serpent or to even a leviathan or a crocodile, and, and part of the reason of that is Pharaoh was known, among other things, as the serpent king. You've seen the, the headdresses that they would wear, and there's always a cobra on the front of it, right? So it's like the, like the Lord is saying, you want to go back to life under the serpent king? You want serpents? Here, have some serpents. Is this what you want? Is this really what you want? And there's of course biblical typology there too, that life under the serpent is life under the devil, right? He says this is what life is like. And then the devil is always coming to make us nostalgic for the days when we were sinners. We've got to remember, no, that's it's just gonna hurt you later if you try to go back to that. But here's what happened. God does not just heal them as he does. He tells them to raise up a bronze serpent. Now, this this word can also mean copper, it can also mean brass. Now, brass and bronze are both alloys of copper. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, brass is copper and zinc, and then bronze would be copper, zinc, and tin. So, there is really nonspecific here, but bronze is, is how it's frequently known, so we'll do that. I found somebody who uh, seemed pretty certain that it was this snake that I have up here on the, on the screen uh, called the Saw Scale Viper. And it's a viper from this part of the world and also over into India that will uh, rub its scales together kind of in, a, in an S pattern. And like it doesn't rattle like a rattlesnake does, but it'll kind of make this shaking sound. And um, I don't know if that was it. I don't think we can, be sur- we can be sure, but they're only about this big, but they're deadly to adult people. So imagine if they weren't like big old cobras, but they're just these little things that are getting in the baskets and they're getting in the cribs and they're getting in the beds and, and they're everywhere. But he raises up this bronze serpent. It says on a pole, a better translation would be a standard or a banner. This is a military term. Like, don't just hoist up a bronze snake. Like, with the banner. And I would imagine this would be the banner of the Lord, the banner of Israel. And we have to know this. This should be obvious to you, but this was not magic. This was not, well, we're going to raise up a bronze serpent. If you look at it, you'll be healed. First of all, because magic doesn't work. Secondly, magic is in when you're having, what's the word? When you're having communion and fellowship with demons, and that's certainly not what's going on here. And it's not idolatry either. And we know this for sure, because in 2 Kings 18, 4, they were going to find the people worshiping this bronze serpent. They're going to hold on to it and keep it. As, of course, why wouldn't you? But it, as, as things degenerated in Israel, they were not only offering sacrifices to the Lord, they would bow down and worship this bronze serpent. So the king broke it into pieces. Sometimes something that was good in the church becomes a stumbling block and a sin, so it has to be removed. But what is God doing here? It's not magic, it's not idolatry, we know this. This is an act of faith. And I I tend to think this was not just a quick glance at the thing, like, oh, I'm healed. This was probably, you need to come and sit in the tabernacle and look at this serpent And meditate on the Lord and what he's done. Be in my holy place. Smell the incense. Hear the bells and the priest's garments moving around. And remember where your healing comes from. And he's not holding up this serpent as a a rallying point to follow. He's holding it up like a defeated foe. It's like our banner is the Lord. And the Lord is able to defeat the serpent king. And you might even say the capital S, serpent of old. And then that is Satan. He's holding up a reminder of their sin. And he's holding up a, a... a sign that the foe has been defeated. And you know, one of our favorite Bible verses in the the whole scripture comes right on the heels of a reference to this bronze serpent. You probably know this. Well, I'm sure you know this verse, even if you don't know the context. But when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter three, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him jesus compares his crucifixion to moses raising up the bronze serpent in the wilderness and this is i think pretty clear but there's layers to this man the more you meditate on this obviously jesus on the cross that's where you need to look right? Lift up your eyes, look upon the Lord, acknowledge what he's done, meditate on what he's done, bow the knee to the Lord who's on the cross. It also is a reminder of our sin, like the serpent was a reminder of their sin. That's what my sin deserves. It's not, wow, what a nice thing somebody did for me. It's what a loving thing somebody did instead of me. You watch the passion of the Christ, it should have been you, should have been you. And it's a reminder that he's like, hey, I'm taking your sin. And it's also a reminder, and this is my favorite part here. Do you remember the, what's called in Latin the Proto-Evangelium? This is the, the Latin word. It means first gospel. Protos means first. Evangelium is like evangelism. It means gospel. And so the Proto-Evangelium comes from Genesis 3.15 when God is giving the curse to Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He says, you will bruise his heel but he will bruise your head. Now, listen, if you stomp on a venomous snake with your boot, yeah, he might bite your ankle and it will hurt. But the snake is certainly getting the worse of that deal, isn't he? So, but he does use that same word, bruise or crush. So as you see Jesus on the cross, he was raised up and crushed. But what happened on the third day? Come on, you know this one. What happened on the third day? He rose from the dead. Hallelujah, right? Now listen, why is it a serpent on the pole? Because when Jesus crushes the serpent, like the serpent tried to crush him, he ain't coming down off of that cross. He's staying there. He's staying up in a torturous death. He's gonna be thrown into the lake of fire forever. So when you look at Jesus on the cross, it's like the serpent being raised up because that's where your healing comes from. It's a reminder of your sin and it's also a depiction of what God is going to do to that serpent of old, that Satan, that devil that's been after us for so long. Salvation turns comes when you turn your eyes upon Jesus and you believe in his saving sacrifice. Don't you think there had to be some people in that camp that were told what they had to do? Go look upon the, the bronze serpent and they said, I'm not doing that. What are you, were you guys crazy? You're, you're a bunch of gullible people. You think that's going to do anything? The last, God has only ever healed through incense and through Moses' word. So this is new and it's innovative and I don't like it. They couldn't handle the new wineskins. And they perished. But those that came and had the faith to do something that was totally outside of them, just to get on their knees and gaze upon this bronze serpent in the house of the Lord, they were the ones that were saved. And the same is true for you and me. The simplicity of the gospel. We're always trying to add stuff to the gospel. Sunday is Reformation Day. We're going to be talking about the Reformation. And and what that was, among many other things, was to take this giant, ossified husk of tradition that had become corrupted. It had become Nahushtan, worthless, like like the, the king said about this bronze serpent. And it was broken off. And did we lose some things in the transfer? Yes, we did. But you know what we retained? Is the simplicity of the gospel. Gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Stop looking for something else. Smart people, I'm talking to you. Stop looking for something that is worthy of your intellect or worthy of your life experiences or worthy of the pain you've gone through. You come and you gaze upon the one that was lifted up, the Son of Man. Like Moses lifted up that bronze serpent. There is no other way to be saved. We are desperate in the wilderness when you recognize you are in bondage to sin. You are in bondage to the serpent of old. But salvation comes when you look upon Jesus. God has raised up a standard by which we might be delivered. In the midst of his judgment, he made a way for us to be saved. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's, That's really the heart of this passage, that story. And isn't it amazing to think that Jesus had this in mind when he said those immortal words, for God so loved the world. That bronze serpent, more than anything else, was an expression of love, just like the cross was an expression of love for you. Do you know that God loves you? Man, don't you know that God loves you with all his heart? And that's what it is to be saved, is to find the love of Jesus. Man, like I said, we could talk on any one of these all night, but we best continue looking at verse 10. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Iye-Abarim, in the wilderness that is opposite Moab. And you go, okay, there's a name I recognize. Toward the sunrise, which would be in the east, of course. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is a river, in case you did not know, Because I didn't until today, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahab and Sufa and the valleys of the Arnon and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. So that's probably a song, in the beginning of a song, where they're identifying where they were when the song about the battle begins. Verse 16, and from there they continued to bear, it's not beer, it's bear, that is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. It's not a well of beers, so don't get excited, okay? <laughs> Verse 17, then Israel sang this song, and maybe you remember this one from Sunday school, spring up, O well, Sing to it the well that the princes made that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness, they went on to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert." So you've got here a short, what's called a travelogue, where it's, it's similar to some of Paul's missionary journeys, where they're listing the, the places that they camped, which don't mean a whole lot to us, but remember, th- this, is, this is history. They're telling the story as it happened. And in fact, some of these locations have been positively identified, which is exciting, but um, we don't have time to get into that today. And they, clam- they camp near the Arnon River, which was close to Moab in the east of the promised land. Don't forget Moab was one of the sons of Lot and his daughters. Remember that creepy story from after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed? Some of you all just looked at me funny. Yeah, that's, that's it's what you think. Uh, that's also where the Ammonites came from. The two sons were named Moab and Ben-Ami. And so the Ammonites and the Moabites were also distant kin of the children of Israel, like Edom was. And that is also why they're not going to be permitted to destroy the Moabites and the Ammonites. So we're going to see as we read this chapter, them clearing out the Amorites, but not the Moabites, or the Ammonites. And it would also seem to see that the Moabites were allowing them to pass through their nation, although it doesn't uh, give a formal discussion of it like it did with the other ones. It also references this song here in verses 14 and 15. uh, And it says it's from the book of the wars of the Lord. I'd love to read that book. (laughs) But we simply do not have it. And you see this several times in the Old Testament where it will reference, for example, the book of Jasher. Uh, And these are other books that were written containing the story that were not included in the canon of scripture, except where they were quoted by scripture. So some people would say things like, well, if it quotes the book of the wars of the Lord, we are missing a book. No, trust God's sovereignty. God is able to provide every piece that we needed in our scripture. And that would include, it seems, certain quotations from the books of the war of the Lord. That does not make it an inspired book. It makes this an inspired quotation. Does that make sense? Paul, later on, will quote from one of the Cretan prophets, Epimenides. That's not saying that all of his writings were apostolic and, and approved and need to be included in the Scripture. It's an inspired quotation. It is not an inspired poet. And for that matter, we don't have all of Paul's letters either. He references a letter to the Laodiceans that we don't have. If we find it, it should not be included in the Scriptures. Because God did not see fit to give it to us. This is also why, this is your answer, when people say, well, did you know that Jude quotes from the book of Enoch? Yes, we did. Yes, we did know that. Maybe you've tried to look through the Old Testament and trying to find that quote from Enoch that he has. That's from the intertestamental book, uh, Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, the book of Enoch. And there are some people today who really think we ought to include the book of Enoch in the Bible, largely because it has a lot of of end-of-the-world eschatology. It talks an awful lot about angels. This is where some of the seven archangels, Raphael and Uriel, came from. But it's not included in the canon. It never was. It was only quoted by the Apostle Jude, therefore we include it. So, just a reminder that you have all the Bible you need, and also a reminder that when people want to get really excited and say, ha, we've noticed that there's a difference in the language or a difference in the structure, that there must have been another source behind these writings. Well, yeah, we know that because it's in the Bible. It tells you right there, this bit comes from the book of the Wars of the Lord, that we know that Joshua would have done some later editing or redacting of Moses' writings. Otherwise, how is he going to describe Moses' death? These things shouldn't trip you up. We still hold to the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, no matter what radicals on the Internet might say. Then they come to Bear, and God provides water for them there. And the difference is, this is not miraculous. It just appears that they dug a well. And, I mean, finding a well in the desert is a miraculous thing on its own, is it not? And can you see the difference between the complaints of the two times that they didn't have water and this happy working song that they wrote? And the Hebrew, I I didn't, I couldn't notice it myself, but a couple guys pointed out that the Hebrew there is very rhythmic and almost like they're swinging the pickaxes while they're singing this song. Spring up, O well. When you were a kid, you'd sing spring up, O well, and you'd go splish, splash. That's where it comes from, is this passage right here. And then they got some further locations until they arrive at a place called Pisgah, which is in the region of Moab. And then uh, there's going to have a couple more battles that are going to take place here. But it seems that Moab was allowing them to move through their territory. It does seem that they had a better relationship with the Moabites than they did the Ammonites. But we'll get into that more maybe when we come to Ruth and places like that. So what's our application here? All right, we've been in the desert, the wilderness. We acknowledge that we are desperate and we need God's help. So what do we do? We come and we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We put our faith in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We abandon everything else. We devote it to destruction so that all we have is the Son of Man raised up for our salvation. But there is more waiting for you after that. Friends, the cross and your conversion is not the end. It's the beginning. That's not the end of your story, that's just the beginning. And in fact, it's the beginning of the beginning of your story. We're not even there yet. Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is more waiting for you. And this reference to a well got me thinking about something Jesus said. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 39, when Jesus was at the temple. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And yet we know Jesus has been glorified. The Spirit has been sent. And that living water that Jesus promised is not just nice poetry to talk about the Christian life. It is a specific description of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples after the resurrection in Luke 24, 49, tarry in Jerusalem. He had risen from the dead. They had believed by all intents and purposes. They were saved. And if they weren't saved at that point, then I don't know how you say anybody else that believes in the risen Jesus is saved. But he says, but don't go yet. I've got something for you. Terry, wait for the promise of the Father from on high. And we know that that was the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two, they were waiting and praying and the Holy Spirit rushed upon them. Their tongues of fire, 3,000 were saved, including their families. Mega church, born in a day. That's what the Lord did by the Spirit. And now us as Christians... We receive the living water of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you need to. But I'm not saying that with a finger in your face. It's, it's, it's wonderful. You're, gonna, you're, you're not going to believe the difference when the Holy Spirit fills you up. Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus told us to pray for the Holy Spirit. Pray for him to come upon us. Acts 8.17 and countless other places talk about the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit. Don't just pray. Pray for each other. Those of you that are full of the Spirit, ask the Lord to do the same thing in them that he's done in you. And Ephesians 5.18 gives us an imperative. It says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a kind of an edgy metaphor that Paul uses, isn't it? Don't get drunk with wine. You want to be filled up with the Holy Spirit. There are several times that they were accused of being drunk when they were baptized with the Spirit, weren't they? Jesus referred to the coming of the Spirit as new what? Wine. New wine. It's a celebratory thing. It's a joyous thing. It's a thing that lifts you up beyond yourself when God comes to dwell within you and empower you. And when some people are baptized with the Spirit, it's an incredibly emotional experience. There are people that, that history and the Bible have told us that have fallen into trances at that point. Remember, that's in the Bible. I'm not just making that up. Peter did. John did. Several other people did. There are some people that they didn't feel much of anything. Others felt super, have felt super emotion of joy or of weeping in the presence of the Lord. Some people immediately are given spiritual gifts in the moment. They begin to prophesy or speak in tongues. Or maybe those things come later. And as they're at home praying and God just begins to do more things. Sometimes you find sins that you've been dealing with for years just fall off in an instant. I thought I would never be done with that. And it's just gone in the moment. Or you find that now when you evangelize, people are saved. That now when I read the Bible, I get it. Now when I pray, I really feel like I'm talking to God. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 16, It's better that I go away that the capital H Helper may come. It's better. Life in the Spirit is better than life with Jesus in the flesh. Isn't that cool to think about? That you have a better deal than Peter, James, John, Andrew, Levi, Thaddeus, Bartholomew. You've got a better deal now. Of course, they got it later after Jesus rose from the dead. But then. If you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you need to be. Peter said in Acts 2.39, he said, This gift is for you and for your children, for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It did not end with the apostles because Peter announced that it was for all of God's people. And I pray that the Lord would make this a Holy Ghost hotspot, man, that we are people who love the Word of God, but because we love the Word of God, we are desperate for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. If you've not been filled with the Spirit, you need to come and and let us pray for you. And if you've been baptized with the Spirit and you have quenched the Holy Spirit, you come to us and we'll repent together and we'll pray for God to fill us up again. Because that happened in the book of Acts over and over and over again. They were filled and refilled and filled and refilled. To use Gail Irwin's term, he said, why do I need to be filled more than once with the Spirit? He goes, well, I don't know about you, but I leak (laughs) I know that I'm filled up with living water and I quench the spirit now it doesn't mean you lose your salvation it just means that you've no longer given place to the Lord and we have the example in scripture and throughout history not just revival but during every time of history where God will re-up with people when you recommit to the Lord you should also ask for a new fresh filling of the Holy Spirit getting into verse 21 now spring up O well right That's the prayer. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon. I grew up hearing him as Sihon. That's fine. King of the Amorites saying, let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness, came to Yahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. Meaning that this king, Sihon, had not been able to crack the Ammonite strongholds. And Israel took all these cities and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites. It says his capital city who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, the ballad singers say, so another quotation here, come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be established. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chamosh. Chemosh was their false god that they worshipped. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. So we overthrew them. Heshbon as far as Debon, perished, and we laid waste as far as Nophah. Fire spread as far as Mediba. So once again, just like with Edom, they ask for passage through the Amorite land, but this time he doesn't even waste time saying no. He just attacks them. And this is Sihon, this, this king, he is one of the kings that will be referenced over and over again in the Bible as examples of the victory that God gave. Now, these were Amorites who had taken possession of part of the Moabite territory. So it seems like, again, they had no trouble going through Moab, but then they get to this guy's territory, which should have been Moab's, but it wasn't. And they asked permission, and he said, no. Now, why is this story included? Why are they including this, this story in this reference? Well, perhaps... There was a dispute between the Moabites and the Israelites who said, since you conquered this land, it was ours originally, you should give it back to us. But they're saying, no, this is included in the inheritance that God gave us to drive out the Amorites. Because remember, they were not to touch the land of Ammon, Moab, or Edom, but he's explaining why the Lord allowed them to do this. That this was Sihon's land before the Israelites got to it. They did not take it from Moab, which would have been a violation of God's word. They took it from this Amorite king. And they rout them. They conquer the land from the the Moabite border to the Ammonite border, all the way up to the Jabbok. Now, you remember the Jabbok Ford is where uh, Jacob crossed the river with his family, where he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And uh, this is likely where they're going to at least consider a crossing into the promised land. Jeremiah chapter 48 is going to quote from this song that seems to be written about the Amorite destruction of Moab, but he uses it in Jeremiah 48 to describe what God is going to do to the Moabites. Israel takes possession of this land. It's not in Canaan, but later on we will see the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh are going to want to stay on this side of the Jordan River. They're going to actually settle here permanently, although that was not originally the plan. And this will actually be a big part of the the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy as we see. Renounce your sin, Look to Jesus, receive the Spirit, and victories will begin to come. 2 Corinthians 3, 17-18 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. So, so much for the idea that the Holy Spirit is not divine. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Man, you receive the Spirit and your life becomes glory to glory. That's what it means to walk with Jesus. Victory upon victory. Not defeat, not, not struggle, not hopelessness. Victory to victory. And we're going to see two kinds here. The first kind of victory is taking back something that the devil had already stolen. Something that didn't belong to him, but he had taken. And we can take these things back. Lost Territory. Maybe you feel like your marriage has just atrophied. You feel like this was being done for the glory of the Lord, but now we've just drifted. We're not doing our devotions like we should. Now we're snippy with one another. And it just, I feel like if we were to talk about it, it would just blow up. But uh, the Lord can restore that. Sins that you've struggled with for a long time. See, man, if I were to stop, I wouldn't even know what to do with my time. Because every spare minute I get, I'm thinking about this and I'm going back to it. You know, um, I I read a testimony, heard a testimony recently of a guy who was uh, addicted to gambling. And he's like, you know, I've quit like three times, like online gambling. And he's like, but I just don't know what to do with my time now. I don't know what to do with it now that there's all this time available to me. But that's, that's what the Lord will do. He says, listen, I can take you past that and fill you up with good things. Fear, I'm talking about mental fear. You know, we we can call it whatever we want, whether it's depression or anxiety or sorrow or heartbreak. The Lord can deliver you out of that. He doesn't just want to comfort you in that. He wants to deliver you out of that. And we have become so educated in the realm of mental health that we no longer seem to need the Lord's help. And we seem to think that it's unfair to tell people that God can deliver them out of these things. I myself have Personally, experience the deliverance of the Lord in that department. And I will never, ever say that God is not enough. Well, I'm just stuck. This is just the way I am. That's not the way God sees it. He has joy and peace and hope waiting for you. And even physical sickness. God doesn't heal every time. No, but what does the Bible tell us to do? Seek the Lord, ask for it, pray for it, expect it. If it doesn't happen, pray again. Keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking. Now, the thing is, you sometimes come and ask for deliverance from, a, from a, some kind of sickness or some kind of other struggle, and you bring it to God, and God wants to go, okay, sure, I'll get these serpents out of your life, but you've got to stop being nostalgic for the serpent king. You've got to get rid of this thing in your life first. And I've, I've known people, Where God makes it very apparent what is holding back, what he wants to do in their life, and they say, you know what, I'll just live with it. I'll just stay with it. You've got to be willing to let that go because there's victory waiting for you. Did Jesus turn anybody away that came to him asking him for help? So you shouldn't think that you are some special case that God just wants to suffer for the rest of your life. We suffer bravely and boldly as Christians, but the Lord desires to liberate you from anything that is not external persecution. I don't mind saying that. There are times where the Lord will allow us to go through things, sure. But the whole tone of the New Testament is, go ask him. Go ask him. Everybody who asked Jesus was healed. How many times in the Bible? They came to Jesus and he helped them all. He would delay his plans and delay his travel to help them all. The devil will convince you, it's always been this way. This is Amorite land. How dare you try and take this from us? How dare you try to take back something that I've conquered? The devil goes, that's just the way it is, pal. God doesn't want to give you victory over that. Don't listen to him. That's what weak liars do. If he could drive you out on his own, he would have done it by now. Or he'll convince you that it can only be this way. Yeah, God could deliver you, but then what? What are you going to do after that? You're going to be one of those lame folks that spends all their time at church Oh yeah, it's, it's great to come to church and see those guys that spend all their time there and really take it seriously, but ah, it's just kind of lame, you know? It's like this, It's not going to really gain you any kind of popularity or kind of advance your life at all. And that's going to block what God wants to do. And it's a battle. It's pain. Battle is pain. You, you think these Israelites didn't get wounded in these battles? You think that they didn't have people that fell in the fight and there weren't widows and children mourning for the lost? It's a battle. It's a fight. But when you seek the Lord and you walk in the Spirit, you get your freedom and you get your life back. Don't let the Lord convince you that what, or let Satan convince you that what he's taken, God can't restore to you. Verses 31 through 35, coming to the end. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Significant sentence. They haven't had a place of their own for a long time. And Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up, by the way, to Bashan, famous for its bulls, if you read the Bible. And Og, Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them. He and all his people to batter at Edre. But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him. For I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left. And they possessed his land. They continue to win battles. They win this battle at Jazer, And then they're making preparations to go into Canaan. They're spying out the land. And here comes the king of Bashan, Og. Deuteronomy 3, verse 11, gives us some more information about Og, the king. It says he was the last of the Rephaim. Now, you remember, the Rephaim was a tribe of Nephilim. They were tribes of half demon, you might in other traditions call them demigods, like half demonic, half human, incredibly tall, incredibly strong. It says that he had an iron bedstead that was 13 and a half feet by six feet big heavy dude. And they kept the iron bedstead. You actually read it in Deuteronomy 3 like you can go see it. It's at such and such place and you can go. It's like a tourist attraction. So you've got a giant king named Og coming to fight you. I can't picture him with anything other than a giant club in his hands. You know, dragging his wife by her hair on the way out to the battle. Og. And then you might think that they were afraid because the Lord says, "Do not fear him." Do not fear him. And Israel has learned. They listen to the Lord who tells them not to fear, but instead to attack. And you know, friend, that is what the Lord tells us to do with the fights that we face. Matthew 16, 18, and 19. Jesus told Peter, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And another place Jesus said, I've given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and all the power of the wicked one. But Halloween movies try to trick us into thinking that the devil can stand against anybody And that Christians have to be walking in fear and trepidation at the thought of what the devil might be doing. No way. Do not be afraid of him. This is the second kind of victory. The first one was against an entrenched position that the devil has in your life. The second one is when you go on the offensive. We're going to spread the kingdom. We're going to drive back the enemy invasion. We're not going to let him take another step. In fact, we're going to take more of what he has. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I know I've said it a million times. I'm going to say it until the Lord takes me, okay? Gates close against invaders. In that instance, when Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail, you are the attacker. You're the one with the battering ram. Boom. And they're trying their best to drive you from the wall, but the gates of hell cannot prevail. So don't be afraid of Og. (laughs) Don't be afraid Life in Christ is not a nursery. It's not like you get saved and everything becomes soft and nice and wonderful and it's throw pillows and quilts and doilies. That's not it. It's a battlefield. And I don't want to frame this in such a way that you, you are not aware of the magnitude of the threat you are facing. The Christian life is a battle against fearsome foes who hate you, hate everything about you, with real stakes. We're fighting for souls here, your own and those around you. But by the confession of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are unstoppable. And I can say these things without sounding like some weird TikTok inspirational video that somebody just made up. You are unstoppable. No one can stop you. Why? Why? Look at me. What is so unstoppable about me? I know lots of people that can stop me. My boss stopped me yesterday when I asked if I could go home early. You are unstoppable because Christ said so. That's the best part of being a Christian. You get all the best parts of the world philosophy grounded in something real. (laughs) Something real that actually matters. So when you say things like, nothing's going to stop me, nothing's going to hold me back. Whoa, hey man, don't be so selfish. I'm not selfish. That's the confidence I have in Jesus Christ. No generational sin in your family. No new wave of wickedness should cause you to fear. And, you know, there's been some of that in the church in this day and age. Been kind of new forms of wickedness. You've got og stomping down the way, you know, and whether it's the transgenderism thing or whether it's abortion or whatever it is or some new thing the kids are doing or, or Odinism and going back to pagan. That should not intimidate you. That should not intimidate you. That's just one more battle for God to win. Everybody else ran away from Goliath. David shows up and, and calls him, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? His brother probably said, David, language. <laughs> now, who does he think he is coming here and talking to us that way? And he gets out there and then everybody else runs away. David, this, this young boy, goes out there to fight, and Goliath sees him, and you know his name would have been pronounced Goliath. Doesn't that just sound like so much more scary? Picture all the Philistines chanting comes out there, Goliath, Goliath. And here comes this nine foot tall dude with a spear like a weaver's beam. And he's got a, a whole person to carry his shield because it's so heavy. And here comes a little shepherd boy named David. And he, he's insulted that you would dare send this little squirt out to fight me. And he kind of gets in his face like Hulk Hogan. He's like, I'm going to chew you up and spit you out, brother. I'm going to rip you limb from limb and feed you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David says, not today, Philistine. There is a God in Israel. I'm going to cut you into pieces and feed you to the beasts of the field. And the birds of the air are going to pluck your eyes out. And your army is going to be running home. And they're all like, David? (laughs) And David, of course, gets his stone in his sling and slings it at this guy's head. Knocks him over. And then what does David do? He cut his head off. He takes this big old Goliath sword and he walks over. This is a 14, 15 year old kid barely can pick it up and then shunk off of the Goliath's head, he picks it up and he's like, Let's go! Let's go to battle. And the Israelites are so charged up, they go and they rout the Philistines that day. They kept the sword, do you know that? They kept it in the tabernacle so that people would remember the victory that God has won. So you shouldn't be intimidated. You shouldn't be intimidated. oh, don't you know what the kids are doing today? Who cares? It's just another Goliath. It's another Og who thinks he's big and strong. There were more giants that were found in Gath. These had six fingers and six toes on every hand and foot. And David's mighty men just wiped them all out. Because that's the victory that we have in Christ. According to Psalm 84, verse 7, it is strength to strength to those who love the tabernacle of the Lord. And he said, well, but look at me, I'm weak. I'm not strong. I'm not a warrior. I'm not even a prayer warrior. I can barely make it out to church. But you know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? God said in in our weakness, his strength is made complete. So the weaker you are, don't try to make yourself stronger. Try to build your faith so that it no longer depends on you. And that when you step out, it's really not you. It's God and his heavenly hosts fighting for you. Do not be afraid. If you see something that needs to be corrected in your family, in your nation, in your city, get up and do it. Don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. You get up and say, the Lord is with me. And if our God is for us, who can stand against us? Not just to sit and take it and say, oh, Lord, I can't believe they said those things, but to stand up and say, not on my watch. Well, who are you to say anything? Oh, I'm nobody, but i got the king of kings on my side, man. I've got the Lord of war. So much for people when, oh, we should worship Thor, because Thor is a god of war. Jehovah is the god of war. He's never lost a battle. Not ever. He never will. He never can lose a battle. They talk about all these epic stories of how this guy fought this guy and, and Thor fought this guy and won the battle. And Zeus, God doesn't even fight. He lets his angels do it. Because like if I got in there, it really wouldn't be fair and the story wouldn't be very good. It says at the end of days, Jesus will smite the Antichrist with the word of his mouth. Amen. Die. <laughs> That's it. Just the word of his mouth. And it says that there's like a sword that comes out of his mouth. Satan in the last day will rally an army that cannot be numbered to march on Jerusalem to throw off the thousand-year kingdom. And it says when they've encircled Jerusalem, God will consume them with fire. Ain't going to be no battle. Come out and fight us. And then, what does it say? The earth and sky and sea will flee away heaven will be rolled up like a scroll and it will be a new heaven and a new earth with no evil and no wickedness and no pain and no tears and joy evermore in Christ. What a turnaround, man. From captivity to sin, wandering in the wilderness, looking back, maybe I should go back to the serpent king. Some of y'all are here tonight and you're tired of, of hearing this stuff, but you've been reminded it's from captivity to conquest in Christ, it's waiting for you today. If you want to see the enemy beaten back, you've got to do what has been set out for us as an example. Don't try to do it your own. Don't make it your own. We don't do that. Paul says, Christ has made me his own. That's what we do. It begins, following through the sequence we went through tonight, with admitting your desperation. If you can't even admit to yourself that you're desperate for God, you're never going to get there. Well, I can handle it. Okay, maybe you can handle it. Maybe I'm not, this doesn't mean that you're broken and you're about to commit suicide. But if you're just like, I can't walk through life. I'm supposed to do this for 70, 80 years? I don't think I can do it that long. You're desperate. Let go of yourself and come to God. Look unto Christ, the son of man that was raised up for you. Bow the knee and say, Jesus, I have nothing in my hands. Right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling and then once you've done that that's when the power comes. The Holy Spirit fills you up and you become what God intended you to be. You become a living imitation of Jesus Christ on the earth. I wish Jesus was living in my house. Friends, in a very meaningful sense he is living in your house. And if you got more than one Christian in your house, you got more than one of him living in your house. That sounds blasphemous. It's not. You've got the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you so that you can be His hands and His feet. Do what He would do. Go where He would go. Say what He would say. Cast out what He would cast out. That's when the victories start to roll in, friends. There are no shortcuts. Can't I skip the desperation part? Nope. You can't. Well, I mean, isn't there? I mean, there's lots of religions and lots of gods. They're not working. Well, lots of Christian churches don't work. Well, I don't recognize Christian churches that are not walking according to the testimony of Scripture. We've been doing that since the very beginning. Jesus has been calling out hypocrites. The church was calling out false teachers before the New Testament was finished because there is a simple core that Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of sins that cannot be altered. Bow the knee to Jesus. No excuses. Well, I don't know about that baptism of the Spirit thing. Well, then you will continue to struggle. I'm afraid. Of what? Of Jesus? He's the Spirit of Christ. When he came upon Jesus, what did the Spirit look like? A dove. A dove. He's not a vulture. He's not coming to pick you up and pick your bones clean. right? He's not an eagle coming to rip you to pieces. He's gentle and he's lowly like Jesus was. You must be saved. And listen, if you—I I know all of you, and we've all had conversations about our faith in Christ and if we believe. But I listen—I've been in church too long to know that it is—that I've been in church too long to believe that everybody that says I believe in Jesus has actually taken that step. And I get it—you don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want to—you want to be able to be part of the community without being judged. We wouldn't judge you anyway. But listen, you need to believe. You've got to take that step—not just. Well, this is this is our culture. This is what we do. Who cares, man? Who cares? This is for every culture. This is above and beyond every culture. This is real. This is the truth about God that lasts above everything. And if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus and called him king, today you need to do it. Well, I agree with a lot of things he said. It's not going to cut it. Well, I've, I've, I go to church and I tithe. Thank you. It's not enough. It's not going to save you. you. think money can save You, you think attendance can save you? You think baptism can save you? You think communion can save you? It's all flesh, unless it's done in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Come and receive it. It'll be the best day of your life. And those of you that are watching, I don't know what camera I'm on, but those of you that are watching this, maybe years later after I preach this, I don't know where you're stuck, but listen, you've got to come, and come to Jesus. He's the one that'll set you free. He set me free. He set everybody here free. We have found what you're looking for in Christ Jesus. Amen? And you also must be filled with the power of the Spirit, maybe for the first time. So I'll end with the words that we read in the middle of this passage when they said, Spring up, O well.